pray to that king that we were just singing to and about. Jesus, uh, we revel today as your people in the fact that you are a high priest who lives forever, that you are a king whose reign is permanent. We need not fear that you will fail, that you will stop standing up for us. We need not fear that your death cannot atone for us that has already taken place and the Father has already shown you uh, and shown us his approval of you by raising you from the dead. Even on this day where we are thankful for the nation that we live in, may our hopes be set on something far more stable, on a person far more uh, sound and steady and permanent than any other human being. May we set it on you, Jesus. We know that you say in your word that the grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of you, our God, will stand forever. And we pray as we come to your word this morning, as we hear it read in a few moments, as we hear it preached, we pray that we would receive it as what it is, your word that will stand forever, that we will be held accountable for having heard and having responded to. May we have a, a weightiness about this task that we are entering into of worship of you and of hearing from you. I pray that you would help me as I seek to speak on your behalf to your gathered people, to speak uh, the words of your spirit from, from the We'll be back in the book of 2 Corinthians next Sunday, Lord willing. Uh, but we're, with it being the holiday, uh, we knew there might be a lot of people out of town. Some of you may be in town and might not know the flow of where we've been in as we go through that book called 2 Corinthians. So we picked a, a different text this morning, Isaiah chapter 40, and we're going to look at a big chunk of that. Uh, my family is leaving on a vacation this afternoon. Uh, we're excited for it. It's July 4th today. You probably have things you're looking forward to. Uh, things that maybe uh, you're even thankful for last weekend. There's a lot that we could be excited about, but I was telling my kids this morning, what's the most exciting thing about our day today? And I said, it's that we get to go worship with you all. And I mean that with all sincerity, that what we get to do right now is the highest privilege of your week, uh, no matter what you have in store today and the rest of the week. So thanks for being with us. Uh, it is July 4th today, is what our country calls Independence Day. Uh, and I wanted to start by sharing a quote from a man named Alexis de Tocqueville. Uh, he wrote uh, a, a work called Democracy in America back in the 1830s. And he wrote a lot in there that's famous, but one sentence in particular that he wrote was this. He said, the position of the Americans is quite exceptional, and it may be believed that no democratic people will ever be placed in a similar one. So he was saying even back in the 1830s as he looked around as an outsider at America, he viewed it as exceptional. The, the, the country that we have, that we uh, had established, he viewed it as being exceptional and maybe unrivaled then or maybe even into the future. Uh, he viewed it as exceptional. And that language of America being exceptional, of our country being exceptional, is one that has been widely believed for a couple of centuries now, since really we've existed. Uh, most Americans have had some form of this belief 
belief that we are a unique country, that we are an exceptional country, that, that God has shed his grace on us, right? Like we sing in America. Uh, we, we believe this typically in our country and have for a long time. In recent decades, though, that idea of American exceptionalism has been challenged uh, more than it had been historically. Probably the last few decades and even the last few years, it's really ramped up. Uh, there are many who, instead of viewing America as exceptional, have started to swing the opposite way and view it as evil. Uh, to, to, they look back on things like what we celebrate today, the signing of the Declaration of Independence from Great Britain, and they would point out that, hey, while we were declaring independence from the British monarchy, we were withholding independence from thousands upon thousands of men and women and children who were enslaved by us as a nation, as we were declaring independence from Great Britain, that we were forgetting maybe that we had taken independence from Native Americans, people who were here long before settlers came. And so they'll look at things like that. There, there's this, I think, and my intent this morning is not remotely to talk about that debate, of whether America is exceptional or evil. There are way more important things that we are going to talk about. But I do think it's a worthy question to think about, to think back on the history of our country and uh, to what degree are we exceptional? How has God shown grace to us? But also to do an honest assessment of where we we have been. But no matter how you answer that question, no matter where you fall on that spectrum of where you, whether you think we are exceptional and God really has placed us in this unique position presently and even in history, or whether you believe that our nation is evil from its founding and has all these corruptions that need to be redeemed, no matter where you fall on that spectrum, Isaiah 40, I think, has a message to say to you and to me and to us. Uh, that our, and it tells us where to set our hope where to set our confidence as we look to the future, to not set it on progressives that are in Congress on one hand and not to set it on principles from our founders on the other, right? That we have someone better to set our hope on, the person of God himself and specifically the person of Jesus himself. And so I'm not gonna try to answer that question of whether America is exceptional this morning, but I do wanna tell you that God is exceptional. That there is a divine exceptionalism that is unquestioned, that is not debatable. There is a divine exceptionalism that Isaiah would want us to point to and that we would be well served to remember on this Independence Day ourselves. And so if you found Isaiah 40, where we're going to start in just a moment is we're going to start at verse 9 and we're going to go all the way down to verse 24. If we had more time, I would preach this whole chapter. I think it is one of the best chapters in all of Scripture, at least for me personally. Uh, God uses it over and over again to minister to me. Uh, and I, I trust that he will use it uh, for you and your heart and soul this morning. But some of you may not know who Isaiah is or where we're jumping into the Bible here, so it's real, real brief. Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament times, uh, really in the time uh, late in the Old Testament as God's people were about to be sent into exile. They had been sinning and, and rebelling against God for generations. And Isaiah was one of these prophets that God raised up to caution them, to, to warn them about judgment that was to come, uh, to, to let them know if we continue in unrepentance that God's going to judge us, that, that he's going to send people to conquer us and send us into exile. And the first 39 chapters leading up to where we'll be today were largely that message from Isaiah of warning caution uh, of telling them judgment is going to come and ultimately it did and they were sent into exile but when you hit Isaiah 40 it's like a hinge in the book of Isaiah in his writings where instead of talking primarily about judgment and warning about that as you get into chapter 40 it's like a hinge where he starts more talking about hopefulness 
uh, of where God's people, even as they were in exile or coming back from exile, where they could set their hope as they looked to the future. And that, that's where we're going to pick up Isaiah chapter 40, and we're going to pick up at verse 9, and I'm going to read all the way down through verse 24, and we're going to see uh, what the prophet Isaiah had to say to these people who were in exile, and then what God would say to us today, uh, this message of divine exceptionalism. So follow along with me, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9 and following. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol. A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. This is the word of the Lord. Isaiah starts this text by saying that there is good news to be shared, right? He says that twice, right at the beginning of verse 9. He says to go up and talks about this city of Jerusalem that these people are going to be returning back to, like a, a herald of good news. They're there to have this message of good news to share with God's people. And the message really revolves around that very first command at the end of verse 9, Behold your God. That's the good news. Behold your God. That is what is the core of the message that Isaiah wants to give them of good news is that there is a God for them to behold. And so this morning I want to walk through this text and I want to use that word behold because it's an important word in this whole passage as as, uh, uh, anchor points for us as we work through this. And the first thing I want to show you from verses 10 and following is this very simple idea and a command right there in the scripture itself is behold your God. That's where I want to start. Behold your God. 
Isaiah says to behold him, right? To behold God. And I think we all know the difference between seeing something and beholding something, right? Uh, There's a big difference between seeing something and beholding it. And Isaiah says to these people, the good news is that they can behold God. We, We don't just see a sunset, right? We behold a sunset. We don't just see the face of a newborn baby. We behold that newborn, right? We don't just see a starry sky at night. If we're looking at it rightly, we behold it. If we are getting married, we don't look down the aisle and just see a bride at the back of the aisle. We behold her, right? That there's, there's a difference between seeing and beholding. And I would just want to point out before we get deep into this text how easy it is for us to not behold God, to just see him, to just kind of know some stuff about him, kind of just view him as this passing thing that, yeah, that's impressive, and then we move on to the rest of our life, the rest of our day, and we behold all sorts of other things, but we don't often just pause and behold him. Think about how great he is and grand he is, how exceptional he is. We too often think of God as a subject to be studied instead of a person to be admired. And Isaiah says to these people, this good news, behold God, pay attention to him, know what he's like, soak it in, pay attention to what he is actually like. And then he unfolds this beautiful message of what God is actually like. If we would take time to actually behold him and see what he's like, to pay attention, there are several things Isaiah is getting at that we can behold about him that are good news for us, that should give comfort to us. That's how he starts chapter 40, right? It's comfort, comfort. We didn't get to read that part, but that's how he starts Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort. And as we behold God and what he's truly like, it will bring comfort to our soul. So if you look at, start at verse 10, as we think of this beholding God, and as you're called to behold God today, I would point out in verse 10 that you should behold God's power. That's one thing that you should first behold about God and that God wanted the people, or that Isaiah wanted the people of his day to behold was the power of God. He says in verse 10, he says that word behold again. He says, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him, right? That's this idea of him being strong him being mighty, the very word he uses, that he, his, he talks about his arm and he's going to talk about his arm again in verse 11. But in verse 10, he talks about his arm as ruling which would have been good news to these people who were under the thumb of these other countries who had taken them over, right? Who had sent them into exile. God is telling them, uh, I rule over all these nations. Like my arm is strong, it is mighty. Like I rule over them all. And then in verse, the second half of verse 10, he says that his reward is with him, his recompense before him. He, he's talking about himself as a victor, as someone who has done the work to rescue his people now and to bring them back into the land, to bring them back to a place of safety. He talks about him as having reward that he has gained from conquest. Now he has this recompense to give back to his people, this peace and security that he can give to his people. And so Isaiah leads here first as he calls these people and God calls us to behold God. He leads with saying, behold his power. See how strong and mighty he truly is. But then very quickly in verse 11, he turns and talks about a very different thing about God that we should behold, something we should pay attention to. Not just to look at his power and behold that, but to behold his tenderness, right? 
I love Marcos, how he said that God, in the song says that not just that God is mighty, but he's merciful. Uh, we, need to see, we see both of those in 10 and 11. He's mighty in verse 10. Verse 11, you see he's merciful. Isaiah uses this image as he tells us to behold God. He uses this image of him as a shepherd, right? And he talks about him in very gentle terms. That he's, he's going to tend his flock like a shepherd. He's going to gather lambs, not just around him or nearby him, but in his arms. That arm that was strong to rule, verse 10, is now carrying and gathering his lambs and gathering them into his bosom. He says, verse 11, there's this closeness to God that he allows his people to, that he draws his people into himself, even though he is strong. And then verse 11 ends by saying that he gently leads those that are with young. So if you could imagine uh, a mother who is carrying an animal. Uh, so Isaiah is saying, as we behold God, to behold his power, to behold his tenderness. But then as he gets to verse 12, he starts asking these rhetorical questions, doesn't he? Those questions that readers and us today are intended to know the answer to just by the fact of how they are asked. And as you get to verse 12, it's like Isaiah is saying, to behold, I was trying to think of a word to capture what I think he's saying here, to behold the vastness of God, uh, to behold the vastness of God. He, he asks these rhetorical questions in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span or enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure or weighed, in the, mount, weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? And all these, these things are using these physical images that the people who read this in their day would have been very familiar with. He, but I want you to pause and think about how Isaiah is describing God by using these rhetorical questions. Okay? He's imagining, when he says the waters being in the hollow of somebody's hands, the hollow of your hand is just whatever little bit you could fit like in the cup of your hand right here. And he's imagining God as holding the oceans in the hollow of his hand. I don't know if you've ever been by an ocean, but that is crazy to think about. The volume of water, and he's saying it's like God holding it in that small part of his hand. And he's saying that he has marked the heavens off for the span. The heavens would have just been referring to the skies above, that they would have had no concept of space and things like we do, but he's describing the vastness of the universe and he's saying that God has measured those, not physically, but if he were a physical being, he could, would mark them off with a span. What a span is, I don't know if you all know this, but if you can imagine the distance between your thumb and your pinky finger, that's a span. And it's saying, like, if you could imagine God's size, so to speak, even though he doesn't have size, imagine all the universe. And it's like God measuring it between his thumb and his pinky. And he talks about the dust of the earth in a measure, if you can imagine a, a scale uh, to, to weigh things on one side. He's saying it's like God can take the, the, the dust of the earth and just put it in like a little measuring jar to put on one side of the scale. Or even the vast mountains that we think are so huge and unscalable. He's saying it's like God can just grab those and place them on one side of the scale. They're like nothing to him. He's the one who spoke them into existence. And Isaiah with these questions is not, he's not trying to just give us like a, a legend on a map. If you ever see a map, you see like the little scale thing at the bottom corner of it, like one inch equals 10 miles or whatever. Like uh, Isaiah's not trying to do that. Like, well, if mountains are like this thing on the scale, then God is like 
a thousand times bigger than that or a million times bigger than that. He's not trying to like give some physical measurements. He is not a physical being, right? God the Father is not this physical being. But Isaiah is trying to just use physical terms to describe how vast God is, how impressive God is, that he is almost incomprehensibly vast and big. We struggle to even have words to use to describe how significant he is. Isaiah wants them to, to think on that, to not just think he exists in some abstract way, but to remember his vastness, to behold that about him. And then as he gets to verse 13 and 14, the last thing in this section, as we think about beholding God himself, the last thing I think Isaiah wants us to behold about God is to behold God's wisdom, to behold God's wisdom. You see this in verses 13 and 14. He uses more rhetorical questions. He says, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Like, is that even possible? No, it's not. But then he says, what man shows him his counsel? The, the answer to that very clearly should be, no one does. Right? And he, he flips around and talks about God and says, who did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him anything? Who taught him the path of justice or taught him knowledge or showed him the way of understanding? Isaiah is wanting these people in his day, and God would want us to remember, that God needs no teacher. God needs no consultant, right? God knows everything. I've said this before, but God never learns anything. But he, he knows everything. And so we ought to never think that we need to offer counsel to God, that we have something to bring to him information wise that maybe he hasn't considered yet. That is absurd, right? Nobody provides counsel to God. There is a better chance of my four-year-old son who's in a class right now teaching me something that I didn't know than me teaching God something he doesn't know, right? It doesn't happen. It's an impossibility. God is all-knowing and God is all-wise. Like He knows, not just knows all facts, but he knows what is best. It's not just information that he doesn't need. It's also wisdom he doesn't need. He has it all. He possesses it all. And so he is worthy of our trust, isn't he? If he is all-powerful, if he is tender, if he is vast, if he is as wise as Isaiah is saying that he is, then he deserves our trust. As individuals, as groups, he deserves our trust. So Isaiah is trying to get this message across of how grand God is. And we can so easily forget how grand God is, how transcendent God is, how much bigger and greater and better he is than us. There's a commentator named Derek Kidner who said this. He said, in thinking about God's transcendence and the effect that that may have on us, he said, the wrong inference from God's transcendence is that he is too great to care. The right one is that he is too great to fail. That is a wonderful statement. The, the wrong inference from God's transcendence is that he's too great to care. The right one is that he's too great to fail. And so though God is great and vast and unknowable, incomprehensible in some ways to us, he still cares for us. And he is, he is fail-proof. Uh, he cannot fail in his plans. 
And so Isaiah starts by telling his people and, and telling us to behold God, to remember what he's like, not just let these facts in your head, but take time and stew on that and think on that. Remember how great and grand our God is. But then if you look down in verse 15, there's another word, behold. It actually appears twice in verse 15 again, doesn't it? Uh, to behold something else, behold some other group of people. Not just God, but to behold us. And that will be my second point this morning from Isaiah chapter 40. First one is behold yourself. And we just rush past them and don't really stop and think about the significance of these things that are true about us. The, these things about how small we are, how weak we are, how sinful we are. We rush past those thoughts sometimes. And Isaiah is saying, don't rush past it. Behold God and how great he is, but look at yourself. Look at yourselves and behold things that are true about you as well. And so I would say in verses 15 and 17, which we'll come back to verse 16 near the end of our time together. But in verse 15 and 17, as we think about beholding ourselves, and as we're commanded to do it, uh, I would say that we're to behold our, and hear this right, behold our insignificance. Behold our insignificance. In verse 15, Isaiah says, Behold, the nations are, and then he says a few things. I want to pause and just make sure you point, make sure you know who he's talking about. He says, the nations. That's not just talking about like individual people, like individual persons. He's saying like the collective humanity. I don't know how many people on our planet right now, more than there were in Isaiah's day. There's something like seven and a half billion human beings on our planet right now. What Isaiah's talking about is us collectively. The nations, he says, all of us, are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as dust on the scales. And he says, behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. And down in verse 17 he says, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. So Isaiah uses a couple of word pictures here to try to impress upon us our insignificance on our own. Right? When he, when he says that the nations are like a drop from a bucket, I think we know what that means, right? Like we use the phrase a drop in the bucket, right? Uh, it's the same image. He's saying that the nations are like a drop from a bucket. If you could imagine a large bucket that's just full of water and then imagine one little droplet in comparison to that huge bucket that's full. Imagine like if this baptistry was full like it was last night. Imagine like one drop of water in comparison to the gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons that are in there. It's like nothing, right? You would not notice it if I dropped it in. You would not notice if I took a little droplet out and dropped it on this floor, right? It would seem like it made no difference at all. And he says that the nations are like that in comparison to God. When he says that we're like dust on the scales, we don't really use scales a lot like they did in the day, but you could imagine one of those old school scales. And you could imagine like one that maybe hasn't gotten used in a little while and a little bit of dust has accumulated on the side of it. That's not tipping the scales at all, right? It's doing functionally nothing to, to tip the scale one way or the other. And he's saying we're like that dust on the side of the scale. All of us billions of people collectively are like that dust on the side of the scale. 
When he says that the, the coastlands are like fine dust, he's imagining islands in the middle of a sea or like a beach area. And he's saying basically this is why we picked this picture in the background there. It's like God could scoop up an island in his hand and it'd just be like sand that just falls through his fingers. It's like not just dust, it's fine dust. Uh, that's, that's, we're, we're almost like nothing. And then he makes it more explicit in verse 17. He says, the nations are as nothing before God. And then I don't even know what this means. I'm going to try to explain what it means. But he says, they are accounted by him as less than nothing. If you understand that, maybe you can explain that to me later. But less than nothing in comparison to God. This is a state, these are statements of our insignificance, but I want to make sure I point something out too, is that these are of relative insignificance, not actual insignificance. We are significant in the sight of God. Like there is countless texts I could show you, even within the book of Isaiah, a page or two to the side of where you're at right now that talk about the value of the nations in the sight of God. We are sending people out from our church to go to the nations with the gospel because the nations are valuable in God's sight. So this is not Isaiah saying they actually mean nothing to God. He's saying that in comparison, relatively, to the significance of God, we are like nothing. Like we are so small and insignificant compared to him. But I, I don't want us to be confused to think that we actually mean nothing. That we're actually insignificant because God ascribes value to us. So Isaiah is saying to behold our insignificance. But then when you get into verses 18 through 20... There's another thing about ourselves that we need to face up to. And I think he would call us to behold our idolatry. Behold our idolatry. Verses 18 through 20, he, he said all these great things about God and then about how insignificant and small we are in comparison. And then it's like in verses 18 through 20, he's, he's saying to these people, like, what audacity like, we have to try to make God into something handheld. To make this vast God small. He's saying, what will you liken God to? What are you going to compare him to? An idol. But like, God is so vast and incomprehensibly big and wise and good. But then the people of Isaiah's day would, would try to, in some way, represent him by these idols that they would have in their homes. Maybe only shrines, things like that. They would, have, they would even hire somebody, a craftsman, to make one for them. And if they were rich, they'd overlay it with gold or something. If they're poor, they would just try to get wood that won't rot, right? And, and Isaiah is pointing out to them at the end of verse 20, he's saying, you are setting up an idol that will not move, that does nothing. This, this idol that you set up, it does, it's not even real. It doesn't even represent the real God. You are making a lifeless object that you are setting your worship on, that you are giving your attention to, that you are giving value to. It's just like that he holds the nations like in the hollow of his hand and then we think that we can turn around and hold him in ours. Right? Like we make God so small and we try to make him how we think he should look, how we think he should be, what, what we think he should be like. And I highly doubt in this room in 2021 that there are any of you who if you were to walk home when I was to go with you that would have an actual physical idol in your house. If you do, if I'm ever at your house, I will take it and we'll have a talk about that. But I, I doubt that any of you have that, right? Like that's not a common practice in our day is that we try to make a God of our own creation. 
Like we try to, we don't take God at his word of what he's like as he's revealed himself in the Bible. We think, well, I know what God must be like. I know what he should be like. So I'm going to form that idea of God and I'm going to worship that. And we all are tempted to do it. To, to form God into our own design, to make God in our image, right? What we think he should be like. And I just want to reiterate to us, if you are trying to do it, build your own God, design your own God, custom God, that is no God at all. That God that you have created in your head is a God that will not move because he doesn't exist. The God who exists has told us about himself. He's told us what he's like. He's told us what he values. He's told us how we can be reconciled to him. We don't need to make up a God of our own. And it's dangerous, it's deadly to do so. We take God at his word. We are idolaters at heart as human beings. And we are always tempted to make God into our image and what we think he should be like. And we have to resist that pull. So Isaiah wants them to behold their idolatry. But then in verses 21 through 24, I'd say he wants them lastly, as they behold themselves, is he wants them to behold their frailty. And I would call us to do that today too. Behold your frailty. Verses 21 through 24. He, he returns in 21 and 22 to that theme about God's vastness, right? He's saying you've always heard from the beginning. You've understood human beings like from the foundations of the earth that there's a God who exists. And then 22, he says that he sits above the circle of the earth. That doesn't mean like a literal sitting above the earth and the, the curve that they may have seen on the horizon even back in that day. But it's this image of God reigning above all. That, that, that he rules over all. And he says that the inhabitants of the world are like grasshoppers. Uh, my kids, Lord willing, are about to fly in a plane for the first time this evening. And I've tried to explain to them how small stuff on the ground looks uh, when you're up high in the sky. And it's like Isaiah was trying to picture that before planes and everything, that, that God is so high above us that we all just look like little grasshoppers. Like we, we think we're so great because we can jump off the ground like that much. And, and God is, sits above the circle of the earth. And he says that he stretches out, verse 22, stretches out the heavens like a curtain. That's that sky image, right? That he pulls it like a curtain. I, I, I don't know exactly what Isaiah is getting at with that, but I think about in my kids' rooms, I pull the curtain when it's nighttime to make it dark in their room. It's like when nighttime is going to be coming on earth, it's like God pulls the curtains. Right? That's how easy it is for him. Right, that he spreads out the heavens like a tent for human beings to dwell in. Some of you may be camping this weekend, and uh, for some of you it's easy to set up a tent. I would probably have no clue how to do that. Uh, but some of you it's like, oh, I could do that in a minute. And uh, Isaiah is saying, God creating the heavens is like putting up a tent to him. It's so easy. Like it's nothing for him. Like he's returning, Isaiah is returning this idea of God's vastness. But then in verse 23 and 24, he turns and talks about us and our frailty. He says that that God who is so vast and, and large and impressive, verse 23, he brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Right? 
he, he says uh, that scarcely, talking about these rulers of the earth who are such powerful people, power players in our, our level of thinking. He says, scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. So they're like barely sprouting up out of the ground when God blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Isaiah is talking about the most impressive among us, the rulers, the kings, the princes, the people who would have had the gold and the prominence and would have had the prestige around them. And he's saying, even those people are nothing compared to God. Like they may sprout up and then God blows on them and they wither. They return to dust. They blow away. And just in summertime, I can't help but think of like uh, the dandelion, I don't even know what you call them, the dandelion things that get those little puff balls of seeds, right? And even like a little kid can grab one of those and often do this, and they can grab it and go, blow on that, and those seeds just go flying, don't they? A little kid can do that. Isaiah is saying kings, rulers, are like those little seeds on that puff ball to God. He blows on them and they wither and they fly away. That's the most impressive people among us are like that in comparison to God. In America, we, we like to look back on our history and think about some of the giants of our day. We've literally carved their faces into stone, right? At Mount Rushmore. Like we, we think some of these people who are great and impressive, who have done wonderful things, we, we like to think of how significant they are, how monumental they are. And Isaiah would say to us, those people are like grasshoppers. Those people are like little dandelion seeds in comparison to me. I have blown on them. Now their bodies are withering in a grave. Like we may have put their faces in stone, but their bodies are in a grave. John Calvin, talking about this text, said, Nothing in this world is so durable that it may not be dissolved by the breath of God. Nothing in this world is so durable that it may not be dissolved by the breath of God. And that includes us. Like we all have these mortal bodies. The, the oldest among us, the youngest, the men, the women, the uh, whoever. We all have these fallen, mortal bodies that will ultimately return to dust. That God will ultimately someday blow upon us. Right? We are frail. Even our kings are frail. And it's important for us, I think, on this day in particular, to remember that our nation, if we're not invincible as individuals, our nation is certainly not invincible. Right? We are like an infant in human history in comparison to a lot of other nations. We are a Johnny-come-lately, right, in the scope of history. And we must resist this temptation. We, have to, don't, we must not ever look to our earthly rulers, to our presidents, to our congresspeople, to our governors, to our mayors. We must never look to earth because everything in this world is like dust on the scales. It will wither, we will wither. We must set our hope on something more permanent, more steady. So if you're if following along thus far, if we behold God and then we behold ourselves, you may be thinking, well, where's the good news in this? Like I thought Isaiah was saying, behold, be a herald of good news to be heard. Because if you think about how vast and great God is, then you think of how 
insignificant and frail, even idolatrous, disobedient we are, it actually presents us a problem. That's where I want to go back to verse 16, which I said we would return to. If you look at verse 16, that maybe is the most cryptic verse in this text for you, I'm, I'm guessing. He says, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. What in the world does that mean? This is actually a very important note in this text because it shows how unable we are to, uh, to satisfy the judgment of God, to satisfy his anger, his righteous anger toward us for our sin. Lebanon, even in the biblical days, was known for its cedar trees, for its forests of cedar trees. You probably, if you start reading the Old Testament especially, you'll start to notice this now. It talks about over and over and over again about the cedars of Lebanon. It was just known for it. Like they had all these cedar trees and what Isaiah is doing here in verse 16, he's imagining that whole, actually, if you look at the flag of Lebanon even today, it has a big old cedar tree right in the middle of it. You can look that up later. That's what it's known for. And what Isaiah is imagining here is he's imagining that whole area of Lebanon being like an altar. And imagining every tree on fire, like all of it whole forest ablaze, burning, smoke going up to the heavens toward where they believe God is seated, right? He's imagining the whole of Lebanon and all its cedar trees as this altar that's ablaze. And then he's imagining all the beasts of Lebanon laying on that altar like a burnt offering. You could try to just imagine the scale of that. It's almost hard to even imagine. But imagine that whole region as an altar and all these hundreds and thousands of animals that would be on that altar. And Isaiah says, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. What he's saying, you could imagine the biggest offering, the grandest offering you could try to make, that we could try to make to God to appease him, to make him satisfied with us, to bring forgiveness to ourselves. And Isaiah is saying, it's not enough. But you can't do it. You can try, but it's going to do nothing but waste you trees and animals. But it is not going to appease the wrath of God for your sin. And that's so important for us to remember that we have offended this great, vast, immeasurably good God. And then we are too weak, too sinful to do anything about it on our own. So like, where is the good news in that? The good news comes in the rest of the book of Isaiah, right? Because Isaiah is trying to set the hope of the people of God in his day, not on having a king sitting on the throne of earthly Jerusalem, but a king on the throne of the heavenly Jerusalem. That, that he knew that we needed a ruler to reign from heaven, not just to reign on earth. And he started telling what this, this rescuer was going to be like, what this king was actually going to be like, who someday would come who someday would do something to make us right with God, this God that we have offended. And that happened in the sending of Jesus Christ, God the Son. He is the key to understanding all of this. So my third point, and this will be the shortest but most important of today's message, would be not just to behold your God or behold yourself, but behold your Savior Because God, the Son, became a human being. Let that sink in after you've read Isaiah 40. This God who is vast, 
This God who spoke things into existence can hold oceans in his hands and who sees the nations like dust on a scale. That God, God the Son, entered the water droplet, right? Like he became one of us. How incomprehensible is that? That God became a human being, a small human being like us. And he, having become a human being, he actually lived in a way that none of us can and none of us have. Like as a part of that little water droplet of humanity, he and he alone actually obeyed God perfectly. If you look, if you have your Bible open still, if you just flip real quick a page or two to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah starts using, he starts picking up momentum as he, his writings continue where he starts talking about the servant of God who is going to come. If you look just at the first verse, and that's talking about Jesus, when you look at Isaiah 42 verse 1, you see Isaiah talking about the servant who we know now as Jesus. He says, behold, this is imagining God the Father speaking, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and then hear this, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So Isaiah, as he anticipated this servant who was going to come, this Jesus who was going to come, he's saying that the soul of God the Father would delight in him. That he actually was going to obey. He was actually going to please the Heavenly Father by the way that he lived his life. He was going to earn reward, earn blessing, earn favor from God the Father like none of us actually could. But then the question remains, if, if all of Lebanon's cedar trees wouldn't suffice for fuel, then all of its animals wouldn't suffice as a sacrifice to appease God's wrath and anger for our sin. What could? Like, what could deal with that? How could God's judgment be removed from us? And it all hinges on this person of Jesus, this God who has become a human being, who's perfectly obeyed, who's innocent, right? Who deserves no judgment from God, who deserves no death for himself. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53, again, several chapters later, but the same prophet. Isaiah 53 tells us about the sacrifice of Christ. In Isaiah 53, he picked up this language again of how we're like sheep and how we've gone astray. But he talks about how this one person was going to do some six. Isaiah wrote this. He says, talking about Jesus, and he writes, this is hundreds of years before Jesus ever even came, but he writes so confidently, he writes as if it's already happened. Right? He says, he was pierced, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement, and then hear this, that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is describing the cross of Jesus. This is saying that that one who is perfect and innocent had no sin of his own. He's saying that our sins were laid on him as he went to the cross. Our sins were counted to Jesus as he went to the cross. And as he died there outside Jerusalem, he was suffering in our place. 
He was taking the judgment of God the Father for our sins so that they might be removed from us. So what the, the cedars of Lebanon and the beasts of Lebanon could not bring about in their volume, Christ did bring about by his sacrifice as one human being. He brought about the forgiveness of God's people. He brought about the, the healing of those who were enemies of God, right? He brought us peace and we are healed because of his sacrifice. So it's like, though, if, if we just think about the cross, it's like God took Jesus and blew on him, right? And now he's died again. Now he's died like every person who's ever come before him, right? And they laid him in a tomb. But on the third day, on that Sunday morning, God the Father raised him from the dead, never to die again. Something that had never taken place he raised him never to die again. And he was showing us by raising Jesus from the dead, this is my son. He is not under my judgment any longer. He has suffered fully and perfectly for the sins of my people. And now I'm showing you, I'm vindicating him by raising him up from the dead. And this is the good news that Isaiah is talking about, is that we can get in on that. Like we can share in the reward that God the Father has given to Jesus. And the way that we become a recipient isn't, of it isn't by piling up our sacrifices to rise up to heaven. You can't do enough things to appease God. The way that we get in on that, the way that we receive forgiveness and the eternal life that Jesus already has is by very simply repenting of our sins and placing our trust in him. Saying, God, I am so sorry I've sinned against you. I've rebelled against you. Please forgive me. And then turning to Christ in faith and saying, I know that he died in my place. Like, forgive me because of him. Like, count me with him. And if you do that, even this moment, God will forgive you. God will make you his son. God will make you his daughter. He will start eternal life within you that will never end. Though your body will waste away and you will be blown on and laid into a tomb someday, you will be raised up to eternal life. But only if you're united with that Savior, that servant that Isaiah said was going to come, only if you're united with Jesus. So Jesus, having been raised and ascended to God the Father, and what Isaiah said in Isaiah 40, verse 22, about how God sits above the circle of the earth, that he was saying metaphorically, now is literally true. That there actually is a human being on the throne of heaven right now. Jesus Christ. He, he rules and reigns from there over all people and all time. So in hearing this message today, on this Independence Day, I just want for all of us who are believers in the room, or unbelievers for that matter, to know that our hope, our comfort, our encouragement is not found in a document it is not found in a president. It is not found in a law. It's not found in the Oval Office. It's not found in the halls of Congress or in state houses. It is found at the right hand of God the Father. He is found at the right hand of God the Father, and his name is Jesus. That is where our hope lies. Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing a glorious song together that I've been looking forward to singing with you all week. But let, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so small. We are like nothing. We're, we're less than nothing. 
and could be accounted that way by you. We could be turned away from you. We could be judged by you, but you are merciful to us. You've sent a Savior for us. God, thank you for the the sending of your son, Jesus. Thank you for his life. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for raising him up and bringing him back to you. And thank you for the, the return of him someday to this earth. To, rise, to have all the dead rise and to rule on a new earth forever. We pray that we would behold you today, that we would behold ourselves, and that we would behold our Savior, your Son, Jesus. And pray this in his name. Amen.